How is everybody? I need to tell Amanda to quit leaving her Bible out in the woods like that. <laughs> I'm thinking that every week, and I just haven't verbalized how, you know, that's a good joke. Uh, so, man, happy you guys are here. Um, we have been in the book of Ruth. We're going to wrap it up today. I think this is our fifth week of Ruth, and we're in chapter four today. Uh, I'm excited about this. I'm also a little nervous about it. Uh, putting this lesson together this week, it's been a, it's been a tough couple of weeks, tough month. Um, just, just, you know, we've had three deaths in the church in the last couple of weeks, and just, um, just a lot of stuff just going on, and the world is crazy. And um, I'm teaching last night at the 7, and I think that's roughly about the time there was another terrorist attack in London, I think, and, and just uh, more and more just going on, and the world is just a nuts place. And um, it's fascinating. It's, it's just neat how things work out. We knew we were going to teach Ruth last year, and uh, we're talking about this beautiful story. If you, if you don't know anything about Ruth, if you haven't been here, Ruth is this beautiful love story that takes place amidst chaos. <laughs> There's this culture that is godless and lawless and just out of control. And in the middle of this out of control culture, we had this beautiful story about this younger, attractive woman who falls in love with this older, prestigious man, and this romance kind of blossoms. And from that, uh, we'll talk about this at the end, from this comes Jesus Christ, right? Eventually comes from this bloodline, and King David and Solomon and all of these people come from this bloodline of Ruth. But we see just kind of in the middle of chaos, that God is still doing something beautiful, right? That's essentially what the book of Ruth is about. Now, in chapter four today, uh, last week, we talked a little bit about, and if you haven't been with us, you can go back and read the book of Ruth in about 15 minutes. It's very, very short, four chapters, okay? And so if you go back and you read a little bit, the story is essentially about a woman named Naomi, right? Naomi was a woman. She was married. She was from Bethlehem. Her and her husband and her two sons leave Bethlehem because there was a famine. They go try to find work. They go try to find food in an area called Moab, which was not a territory where people worship the true God. Um, long story short, in a 10-year span, her two sons get married to two Moabitess women, women from the area of Moab. Her two sons die. Her husband dies. So she literally loses her entire family. She's left with her two daughters-in-law, but even one of those leaves to go back to her family. And she's left with one daughter-in-law, a woman named Ruth. They go back to Bethlehem. They start kind of at the lowest level you can possibly be on, right? Ruth is in an age to where she can't work anymore. Um, I'm sorry, no, Naomi is, and then Ruth, who's still young, she goes out, she works in the fields, but she works the worst job imaginable. She's basically what's called a gleaner, which means everyone goes and works the field, and if they happen to drop some stuff, she goes by and picks up the scraps. That's what she does, right? It's these two women's lives. Long story short, Ruth kind of uh, uh, gets to know the man who owns the field, a, name, a man named Boaz, who's a very honorable man in the town. Boaz takes a liking to Ruth. At first, not a romantic liking, but just this young woman who has this great reputation, he wants to take care of her. And then he starts to become attracted to her, and these two kind of notice each other, right? And in chapter three, we see that Ruth takes the steps to make it known that she wants to, to be with him, right? She wants to marry this guy, Boaz. But there's one hurdle in this, and the hurdle is, in this culture, there was another man who had the first right, right, the first opportunity to pursue Ruth. So that's kind of where we're at. And so in chapter four, 
Boaz is going to deal with this last obstacle so he and Ruth can be together. And we're going to see the conclusion of this very short but very powerful story. So last week we talked about this, that when we're following God, there's a time when we should be still, right? Be quiet, shut up for a little bit, remove the distractions, chill out, right? And just know that God is God. There are other times when we need to be assertive, when we need to be proactive, when we need to take steps. And when we do, God honors those steps, okay? This week, we're going to talk about this. Guys, and I'm just going to warn you a little bit. I'm going to get a little preachy at the end. And, and I think that's what preachers are supposed to do. But I'm going to get a little preachy at the end. But we're going to talk about this. That we can only respect, uh, expect a return when we have invested into this life. We can only expect to get something out of this when we have put something into this, okay? That's what we're gonna talk about. Now clarify that at the end, okay? So you should have a notes handout in front of you. If you've got a smartphone, if you get the Uversion app, the Bible app, right? You can click on the bottom right corner and it'll say events, I think. Click on that and our church will pop up and all the notes are there. It's even in Spanish if you just wanna brush up on that a little bit. So uh, all that is there for you and um, should have everything ready to rock. You guys excited about worship night Friday? <laughs> How cool is it that they're shutting down the entire square for Kyle, right? You know, who thought? So they're going to shut down the whole entire square. They're going to give us the whole square. We expect to have four or 5,000 people out there worshiping, and we're going to baptize people on City Hall's front lawn. How cool is that, right? That's pretty neat. And that's not to brag on us, but how cool that a city would get behind such a thing. What a great mayor that we have that he would just, I don't know, he's going to be there with his family. He's going to open it up in prayer. Really, really cool stuff. I hope all you guys come out to that. It's gonna be a blast. And Popcorn from Mars is gonna have popcorn and ice cream out there for sale. So we can worship and eat some killer popcorn simultaneously. Doesn't get any better than that. So there we go, all right? Okay, I'm gonna pray. We will get into chapter four, wrap it up. It's a short chapter. You guys can go out and enjoy, uh, enjoy your Sunday, okay? Father, Lord, we love you. God, we praise you, we thank you, we lift you up, God. Lord, I pray that you keep your hand on us today. Open up our eyes, open up our ears, help us to understand, help us, God, to apply what we hear today. Lord Jesus, we thank you for every church in our town, God. We thank you for such a great city that we live in. We thank you, God, uh, for Mayor Shane and that the fact that our city would allow us to do a worship night in a public area, God, right in the city uh, center, Lord. Thank you for that, God. Lord, I pray that many people come to that and many people get to just get a glimpse of, of, of what you're like, Lord. And I pray that many people's hearts are touched, that we baptize a lot of people, that it just makes a significant impact on our city, God. Lord, we love you and we thank you and thank you for the Predators winning last night. In Jesus' name, amen. We, uh, <laughs> we prayed for them last night and people kind of laughed a little bit. And I'm like, hey, you guys remember the Tom Brady prayer that I made on Super Bowl Sunday? That one worked. You're welcome, right? I got more hate mail for praying for Tom Brady than almost anything else I've ever done in this church. When they won the Super Bowl, people were posting on Facebook, thank Corey Trimble for this. And I was like, you know, hey, prayers work, right? So prayed for the Predators last night. They dominated. We need to make sure we pray for them Monday because I think God has a very vested interest in the Predators. So we'll... Uh... <laughs> Let's get into chapter four. I got an amen for that. Good, good. Let's, let's get into chapter four. Boaz went to the gate of the town and sat down there. 
Soon the family redeemer Boaz had spoken about came by. Boaz called him by name and said, come over here and sit down. So he went over and sat down. Then Boaz took 10 men of the town's elders and said, sit here. And they sat down. He said to the redeemer, Naomi has returned from the land of Moab. She's selling a piece of land that belonged to our brother Elimelech. I thought I should inform you, buy it back in the presence of those seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you want to redeem it, do so. But if you do not want to redeem it, tell me so that I will know because there isn't any other one to redeem it, and I'm the next after you. I want to redeem it, he answered. Then Boaz said, on the day you buy the land from Naomi, you will also acquire Ruth, the Moabitess, the wife of the deceased man, to perpetuate the man's name on his property. The Redeemer replied, uh, I can't redeem it, or I will ruin my inheritance. Take my right of redemption because I can't redeem it. So he just changes his mind really quick. Okay, so here's what happened. Ruth had two promises made to her. One from Boaz the night before. Boaz promised her that you'll be taken care of. Whether it's by my hand or by this other man's hand, Ruth, don't worry, you're gonna be okay, right? You're gonna be financially taken care of, you're gonna be protected. That was the first promise. The second promise was made when she got home by Naomi who said, I promise you it's gonna be Boaz that does it, right? She says, he's gonna resolve this and he's gonna resolve it today. So Boaz, being a man of his word, he goes into the town and he goes to the town gate. This would have been where a lot of conflicts were taken care of. Not like court, but kind of like court. They would convene in this area, they would get witnesses, and they would resolve business issues or conflicts with each other. And so that's what he was going to do. So if you haven't been with us, family redeemers were men that were chosen to provide for and protect people under, under their family, which could have been very broad, right? if something had gone wrong, if they became widows like Naomi and Ruth, if they had become bankrupt, if they were in some kind of uh, uh, legal issues, that they would protect them. So the first family redeemer walks by, Boaz sees him and goes, hey man, come here for a second. We have something that we need to talk about. So Boaz got the first family redeemer over there. He grabbed 10 elders from the community, 10 men. They sat down and they're gonna talk about this business that they have to take care of, right? So the, the first topic of business was the fact that Naomi owned some land. And in this time, if you were a widow, you were not allowed to sell your own property. You had to have the family redeemer take care of it. And the first person who had the right to take care of it was this guy, Mr. X. We don't know his name, but he's the first family redeemer. So that's what we're going to call him, Mr. X, right? So he has the first shot at this. Now, let me pause here for a second. When one reads the Old Testament and when one reads the book of Ruth, one can think that the Old Testament is misogynistic or, or kind of suppresses women, and that is not the case. Let me tell you what was going on. In this culture, and it says that like, you know, if you buy this land, you also get this woman with it. That sounds very derogatory. That's not what it means. This was a culture that valued women heavily, this Jewish culture. And so they had laws in place that if a woman's husband died, it was a law that one of the family redeemers take this woman, provide for her, protect for her uh, for life. So it wasn't a misogynistic thing. 
that Ruth and Naomi were part of the deal. It was to ensure that these women were provided for, protected for. They valued them, and they wanted to make sure that they had a covering, okay? So it wasn't against women. It was very pro-woman, all right? So Mr. X had the first right of refusal. He had the first right to buy this property from Naomi and take care of Ruth and Naomi, but he also had the right to refuse it and pass it on. So if the first family redeemer didn't want to go through all this ordeal, they could pass it on to the second redeemer, and that happened to be Boaz. But if they chose, if Mr. X chose to purchase this land, right, which would have been a good financial move for him, a relationship with Ruth would have been part of that transaction. So Boaz's heart must have sank when this man instantly said he would do it, right? Hey, there's this land that Naomi has. Do you want to buy it? And he's like, absolutely. And Boaz was like, oh, I wasn't expecting that, right? Wasn't expecting him to say yes so quickly. But Boaz had kind of a, a, a secret weapon, if you will, in his back pocket. Mr. X didn't know the rest of the deal yet. He thought it was just a deal for some land. Now, the first redeemer was interested in the land because it would have been good for him financially. He didn't know that not only would he have to marry Ruth, but he would also bring her mother-in-law into the equation too. So to discourage Mr. X, Boaz says, awesome, you can buy the land. But if you buy the land, you also have to marry Ruth, who's a foreigner, right? She's an outsider and she's been married before and her husband died. And you also get her mother-in-law. You have to provide, protect, all these things for these two women until they both die. So the Redeemer, the first guy, Mr. X, was like, uh, didn't think about that part of the deal, right? Didn't know that I was going to get two more mouths to feed, right? I haven't even met these women. These women don't know anything about them. So it didn't seem like a very good deal at that point. So what he said, Mr. X, is he goes, I, I, I don't want two more mouths to feed. So more than likely, this guy wasn't a rich man, and it's not that he was just a terrible person, but he probably couldn't afford it. It would have been a financial strain on him. So he says, I'll pass. Boaz, if you want to do it, you go ahead. Here's the thing, though. He was a family redeemer because he was trusted to take care of people. So this goes a little bit past his finances, and it touches on a heart issue that Mr. X had. As a family redeemer, he was commissioned by God to help out those in need. But because it complicated his life and because it would affect his wallet, he opted out of taking care of these two women. So here's where we find ourselves. Everyone in this room, we are always caught between being a Boaz who is sacrificial and does the right thing and a Mr. X who is looking out for their own best interests. We are always caught between this. It is easy to look out for ourselves first, but God has called us to be counterculture to that. In a world that is always looking out for us, number one, God says, no, 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 that's not it. The first will be last, the last will be first. Put others in front of yourself. Jesus has commissioned us as Christians to take care of those that need us. It's gonna hurt our wallets, it's gonna be inconvenient, but that's what God has called us to do, okay? To be a Boaz, not a Mr. X. Next part. So at an earlier period in Israel, a man removed his sandal and gave it to the other party in order to make any matter legally binding concerning the right of redemption or the exchange of property. So you guys pick on me for wearing flip-flops. You guys couldn't even do business deals in this time unless you wore flip-flops like I do. So there you go. It's biblical. 
This was the method of legally binding a transaction in Israel. So the redeemer removed his sandal and said to Boaz, buy back the property yourself. Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses today that I'm buying from Naomi everything that belonged to Elimelech, Chilion, and Melon. Those were uh, uh, Naomi's kids. I will also acquire Ruth the Moabitess, Melon's widow, as my wife to perpetuate the deceased man's name on his property so that his name will not disappear from among the relatives or from the gate of his home. You are all witnesses today. The elders and all the people who are at the gate said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is entering your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built the house of Israel. May you be powerful and famous in Bethlehem. May your house become like the house of Perez, the son of Tamar, bore to Judah, because of the offspring the Lord will give you by this woman. Okay, so here's what happened. Verse 7 says, this is Corey's translation. Yo, give me your flip-flop. Verse 7 says, At an earlier time, a man removed his sandal and gave it to another man, and that's how they did a business transaction. This is essentially what it was. Once upon a time in Jewish culture, you could shake hands and say, deal, deal, and that was good, right? It was binding. When it says at an earlier time, what that shows us is during Boaz and Mr. X's time, that kind of honor, that kind of integrity was pretty much gone. But these two men were honorable enough to where they could exchange sandals and say, the deal is done, right? I trust that you'll uphold your end and I will uphold my end. Here's what happens though, when it comes to morality and when it comes to ethics. When one generation knows right from wrong, but they ignore it, listen, the next generation will be completely oblivious to what is right and wrong. That means me as a 37-year-old man that has an eight-year-old and a girl that's about to be five, if I know what's right and wrong, but I don't do what's right, the generation after me won't even have an idea of what right and wrong is. That's where we are right now, folks. There are people that do things that are unbelievably immoral, but they don't even know better because the generation before them never taught them any better. We have a group of people that slam on the millennials. Who raised those kids? So we're so quick to criticize the 20-somethings of our culture, but when we're the parents, right? Maybe we need to look in the mirror and say, we knew what was right and wrong, but we didn't live it. So now the generation below us doesn't even know what's up. They don't know what's up, what's down, what's left, what's right. They don't know how to live. When one generation ignores it, the next generation will be ignorant of it. So after the two men make the deal and they exchange sandals, right? Hopefully they had the same size foot. Boaz proclaimed to the elders and all the people listening, he said, here's what we did, right? He's got his sandal. He goes, here's what we've just done. I am buying the property of Naomi, and I'm also going to marry Ruth, right? So everyone saw this. And so the elders and the crowd watching said, we saw it, we're witnesses. And then they pray for this transaction. So the elders of the town, maybe the crowd that has accumulated says, Boaz, let us pray for your future. So they pray for Ruth. They say, God, bless Ruth with children. Make her fertile, right? Just like Rachel and Leah who built up the house of Israel. The second thing that they pray for is they pray for Boaz would be prosperous and be famous 
in Bethlehem. That doesn't mean that they're wishing he had super rich, you know, amounts of money and that he was super famous, right? That's not exactly what they were praying for. It's not the kind of worldly prosperity and fame that we think about. You and I live in a culture that is absolutely obsessed with being recognized, right? Andy Warhol came up with the term 15 minutes of fame, right, that we still use, that we all want our 15 minutes of fame. That's why Facebook is so huge. That's why Instagram is so huge. That's why uh, Snapchat and everything else is so huge, because it brings us recognition. I do it too, guys. But we take a selfie or we put something up so we get recognition. We live in a culture obsessed with recognition. We live in a culture obsessed with selfish ambition, right? living our dreams, doing what we want to do. But as a Christian, we learn, or at least we should learn, that it is not all about us all the time. Here's the thing about being a Christian, guys. This is the, this is the crux out of it. In a culture that wants recognition all the time, if we would learn to honor God first and honor other people second, we will get recognition. People will recognize that. And here's the thing, even if people don't recognize it, God recognizes it, and that's better than 5,000 friends on Facebook. You guys are with me, right? Sometimes we're so after the approval of man, the Bible says we shouldn't be after the approval of man, we should be after the approval of God. Here's the thing, though, about affluence and influence. Influence is power, right? Affluence is monetary gain, financial power, if you will. I think the reason why a lot of us don't have affluence and influences because I believe that God knows he can't trust some of us with those things. There's a young man that comes to church here. He's a good young man. Um, played baseball for the Arizona Diamondbacks. Had a $1.8 million signing bonus, I think when he was about 18 years old. He told me about that one time. I'm like, dude, if someone gave me almost $2 million when I was 18, I would have blown something up or myself or it would have been bad news, Right? because I couldn't have been trusted with that kind of money. This young man, on the other hand, put it in the bank and to my knowledge, still hasn't touched that money. He could be trusted with that amount of money. God gave him that because he knows he would be a good steward of those things. Now, here's the thing. Some people don't have power and influence because some people don't know how to wield power and influence. They would be dangerous with it. So God is looking for Christians whom he can trust these things with. The Bible says this. One of my favorite scriptures from the Old Testament. It says in Zechariah, do not despise the days of small beginnings. Do you want to know why some of us don't have bigger things going on in our lives? Because we despise the small things. Because we will not do the small things. There's a reason why some pastors don't have big churches, because they were never willing to scrub toilets. They were never willing to give up a lot of time. They were never willing to be servants, which is what pastors are supposed to be. But oftentimes, and I'm not trying to brag on me or disparage anyone else, but so many times pastors will come up and they're just like, man, how did the church get to be this size? And I'm like, we have a team of people who are willing to scrub toilets and vacuum and pressure wash ceilings and do all kinds of dirty work, and they're willing to do it for nothing or very little. And until you reach that point to where you're content being at the bottom, you're never going to climb up the ladder. I don't care what field you're in. They're never going to trust you to manage an organization if you're not willing to be faithful with the small things that you've been given. That's just life, guys. And the Bible says, do not despise the days of small things. Do not despise the days of the little tasks that you're given. Make the best of those things and you'll be trusted with more.
okay? We also need to define these two terms. When we talk about prosperity and we talk about fame, we need to define those things in kind of a biblical context. When it comes to prosperity, we even have a thing called the prosperity gospel, which means that if you love Jesus, you're going to be rich, right? I must have missed out on that one, and a lot of you did too, but there's this thing called the prosperity gospel. We need to take a step back from this in our first world culture that we live in, where we think we're poor if we don't have, you know, two iPhones or something like that, right? We have this distorted view We need to know that every single person, if you are in the will of God right now, regardless of your bank account and the kind of car you drive, we are all prosperous if we are where God wants us to be. All of us are prosperous. Fame is not being on American Idol and everyone knowing your name. Fame is having a good reputation. It's your name being untainted. It's that when people see you, they say, that's a good woman. That's a good man. That's a righteous individual. That is biblical fame. And I think the American church needs to take a step back and we need to assess how unbelievably blessed we are and we need to reprioritize some things. I've said it before, the church in North America is shrinking at alarming rates and we have all the freedom and blessings that you could possibly get in a country. And in places like communist China and North Africa, where it's riddled with with tons of radical Islamic people who want to kill Christians, places like that, Christianity is just absolutely exploding. They're hungry over there, right? But here, Christianity is sinking at alarming rates. Last part. Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. When he was intimate with her, we're not going to expound on that, the Lord enabled her to conceive and she gave birth to a son. Then the women said to Naomi, the grandma, right? Praise the Lord who has not left you without a family redeemer today. May his name become well known in Israel. He'll renew your life and sustain you in your old age. Indeed, your daughter-in-law who loves you and is better to you than seven sons has given birth to him. Naomi took the child, placed him on her lap, and took care of him. The neighbor women said, a son has been born to Naomi, and they named him Obed. And his father, uh, he was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now, this is the genealogy of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram, who fathered, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, fathered nation. I can't pronounce it, guys. I tried like eight times looking at YouTube trying to pronounce a name. My tongue won't, just won't do it. Mm-hmm, fathered Nashon, who fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz, who fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse, who fathered a runt kid named David. We'll get to that here in a second. So, go back here. Come on, clicker. So Ruth chapter 1 verses 1 through 5 compresses 10 years of Naomi and Ruth's life, okay? Verse 413 compresses the first year of their marriage. Ruth is gone. This is so neat. From Ruth chapter 1 to Ruth chapter 4, this woman has gone from a foreigner working the lowest level possible, as poor as you can be, to being the most prestigious woman in Bethlehem. She's married to the most prestigious man. The whole town is honoring her, praying for her. She has become a big dog in this town. Furthermore, she was going to have children. God was going to bless her with children with this man that she loves. And so the neighboring women in the town, they told Naomi, praise God, right? Because they knew that all of these things 
were because God gave these things. They said, praise God who didn't leave you without a family redeemer. Not just that, God is going to renew you. He's gonna sustain you in your old age. And they knew exactly where all these blessings came from. Now, I could easily get on a soapbox, but I'm gonna do my best not to right now. As Christians, as people who know God, we need to remember that all good things come from God. Everything good you have, every success you've ever had, every dollar you've ever made, everything ultimately comes from the Lord. And we live in a culture that is so entitled. Even as Christians, we are so entitled, but we need to remember this. If you're in here and you're a believer, like I'm a believer, we are owed nothing and everything we have, we did not deserve. We've got to get that in our system. God owes me nothing, absolutely nothing. Anything I have, including the breath in my lungs right now and the blood coursing through my vein is because God is a gracious, benevolent, kind God. That's the reason why we have anything. And whenever we as Christians start thinking that God owes us something or anyone owes us something, there's a problem with us. There's a problem with us and we need to step back and we need to take a hard look at ourselves. So again, they prayed for the son of Ruth and Boaz to be famous. This is not, again, a vain popularity, but this is for him to grow up and to have a good reputation and to have honor and to have a good name. So Boaz and Ruth had a son named Obed, which means servant. Obed fathered a man named Jesse who fathered a little runt kid named David. If you were a Jewish person reading the book of Ruth for the first time, this would have been like the M. Night Shyamalan twist in the movie, right? He made a movie called Signs, good movie, right? The Village. Okay, anyways. So this would have been the huge twist in the movie where you were like, oh my gosh, King David came from Ruth. Ruth was King David's great-grandmother, right? It would have just been amazing. The little kid who saved an entire country by killing a giant in a field, the same King David that grew up and became the most popular king in all of Jewish history, right? The father of King Solomon, right? This is Ruth's bloodline. They would have been blown away by this. This just would have been a huge part of this story. So what we see in Ruth is this, not just a great theme from the book of Ruth, but a great theme of the entire Bible is played out through Ruth. That no matter what the circumstances, God has a plan that moves us from our insecurities into his security. From our discontentment to his contentment, from our chaos to his peace, God has a plan. And God uses the most unlikely character of a foreign poor woman named Ruth. He uses the most unlikely character, produce not only one of the greatest kings in Jewish history, but the Messiah, Jesus Christ, comes from the bloodline of Ruth. That's what God does. The most unlikely figure becomes a catalyst for the greatest person that's ever been born, right? And so in the darkest days of the judges, God works out a plan for Ruth to become the great-grandmother of the man after God's own heart, King David. Here's the thing about Ruth. She would have been all but forgotten. And she was at this crossroad with her sister-in-law, right? 
Their husbands have just died. Ruth could have went the easy route back to comfort, back to security, back to her. What was easy? But instead, she took the route God wanted her to take. And look at the results. Look at the results. When we come to those crossroads where there's what God wants us to do, which may be difficult and painful, and there is what we want to do, Ruth took the right direction, and we are still discussing this woman thousands and thousands of years later. She's gone down in history, right? So just a quick recap. When we first started the book of Ruth, we talked about that even in the worst cultures, the worst environments, the worst circumstances, God has a plan, right? He's working out a plan to save his people. In our own personal issues, when we have personally confusing times, personal times that are dark, times that are hard, there is a lesson that God is trying to teach us in those times. Guys, remember when I talked about that, that when everything is falling apart, that we should step back and say, God, what are you trying to do right now? Are you trying to tell me to repent for something or ask someone to forgive me or maybe I should forgive someone or is there some kind of lesson we should learn from this, right? We also talked about this, that there are seasons in our life that what we're going through right this moment is not going to be forever. That if we would look at the big picture, we'll know that if we trust God, he'll pull us out of these valleys, right? That he'll make us get through these times. And we talked about last week that there's a time we should be still. There's a time we should be assertive, right? Where we should move forward. Here's one of the things I picked up this week in my studying. We need to learn. When things are falling apart, we need to learn to step back and know that there is a bigger picture than just this moment. Guys, let me tell you something. Two weeks ago, on a Wednesday... We had two different, and I'm not trying to, to, I just need to be so careful how I talk about this because I don't want to hurt anyone's feelings. I don't, I don't want to be insensitive. Two Wednesdays ago, I got two different phone calls from two different people who told me that two different men at this church killed themselves in one day. I don't know if you've ever been in that place in your life where you've contemplated suicide. I've been there three times in my life where I tried to take my own life. Here's what happens when you get to the point to where you're willing to take your own life. You're so focused in on a moment that you never think you'll be able to overcome this moment and you do something irrational and you do something destructive and you do something that can never be turned around. But if we will just know in those moments when it is extremely dark, when it is extremely depressing, when it is extremely lonely, if we will just take a step back, if we will allow the Holy Spirit, if we will allow God to pull us back a little bit and we can see that this will pass, that if we can trust God, he will bring us over this. He will deliver us through this because what happens is this. When we are so stuck in the moment that we don't see what God is doing in the big picture, we act out of fear, we act out of desperation. And when we act out of fear and desperation, the results will be extremely poor. Even if we don't do something as dramatic as taking our own life, we will hurt others. We will hurt ourselves. We will make decisions that will have repercussions that ripple for generations. So we've got to remove ourselves and we've got to look at the big picture and know that what is going on right now, that if we will trust God, we'll make it through that. 
We'll make it through that. So what do we do? We have to know that things are not going to change unless we start investing in the right thing. We live in a culture right now that does not value honor. We don't value ethics or respect or love or discipline. Guys, I'm going to get controversial here for a second. Everyone flipping out about Kathy Griffin holding up a, a decapitated fake head of our president, right? Which quite honestly should be, that, that should be against the law. There should be some kind of legal repercussions for such a stupid, vile act. But we're all shocked by this, right? But this is the culture that we've created. We stopped respecting government decades ago. We stopped respecting authority decades ago. And when a comedian holds up a bloody severed head of Donald Trump, we're shocked and we say, how did we get here? And I look at it and I'm like, I'm shocked that you're shocked. I'm surprised that we haven't gotten here sooner. When Christians slap 666 on Barack Obama's head and make it their Facebook profile pic, and we're shocked that a comedian who doesn't know God does this? We created this monster. We created this culture. We haven't taught our kids to honor and respect their elders. We haven't taught our kids to honor and respect those in governing authorities. Romans chapter 13, the Bible tells us to do. We've stopped respecting these things. We don't have proper business ethics. We don't respect people. You, I can't tell you how many Christians I've heard say to me, well, I'll respect them when they respect me. You're not a Christian. You need to respect people just because they're made in the image of your father. Whether that person knows it or not, they're a human. Treat them like a human. That we're a culture that doesn't understand discipline anymore. Do you know that's one of the fruits of the Spirit? Discipline, right? Self-restraint. And we're a Christian culture. So we have such a skewed perspective. We don't even honor these things anymore. And if we're not investing, listen, if we, I'm talking about us in the room, Christians in the room, if we're not investing into prayer, if we're not investing into reading the word of God, if we're not invested in living righteously, and if we're not invested in other people, we cannot be shocked when we get the results that we get. Amen. Corey, my marriage is falling apart. When's the last time you took your wife out on a date? Uh, I can't remember. That's why. That's why it's falling apart. Because you didn't love her like Christ loves the church. And when you don't invest in your wife, you can't be surprised when you get nothing out of her. When she finds herself with another man that does compliment her. I know that's not right either, guys, but you see what I'm saying. My kids have run wild. It's because you're so busy on your dang phone that you don't talk to your kids. Get on your iPhone and look at how many hours you've logged into Facebook. And then ask yourself how much time you've spent with your family and we get the results we get, right? Three funerals in two weeks is what I've done. And guys, let me be mean for a second. All three of them could have been prevented. All three of them. And I sit here sometimes, and I'm like, God, are we doing it wrong? Are we doing it wrong? But we wonder why culture looks the way it looks. We wonder why we have the television programs we have. We wonder why half of our kids are on some kind of psych psychotropic medication to help them, right? 
We wonder why marriage is such an oddity in a culture where everyone gets divorced. And we're so shocked by all of this, but why? When there's no deposit, there's no return. When we put nothing into it, we get nothing out of it. I never hear God, Corey. Do you pray? Do you listen? I'm broke, Corey. My marriage is falling apart, Corey. All these things are happening. When we don't invest in what is proper, we're gonna get horrible results. We're gonna get the culture that we have. We're gonna get the government that we have. We're gonna get the schools that we have. We're gonna get the nuclear family that we don't have. These are the things we're gonna get. Here's our problem, guys. We live in a Christian culture. 68% of the United States 68% claims to be Christian. 68%. We got huge buildings in our town that are full of pseudo-Christians right this moment, right? And they say, we love Jesus. We are followers of Jesus. But Jesus said this, where your treasure is, that's where your heart really is. So if I were to look at your pocketbooks, If I were to look at your checkbooks and your bank accounts, if I were to look at where you spend your time, if I were going to look at where you spend your energy, I can tell you exactly where your heart is. You can tell me you're a Christian all day long. But when your heart is more in your job, right? If your treasure is more in sports or if it's more in something else, right? Your treasure is where your heart is where your time, money, and your energy go. We can call ourselves Christians all day long, but if we're not investing in Christ, and if we're not investing in each other, we are not Christians. We are not following Jesus Christ. So here's the question I want to ask you, and I've been asking myself this all week long. What are we investing in, and has it gotten the results that we want? If we're a 68% Christian nation, shouldn't our laws, shouldn't our culture, shouldn't our movies and our music and our media and our politics reflect at least a 68% Christian ideal? But they don't because we're not 68% Christian. (laughs) Even in the South, right? Do you guys notice that homelessness in our town keeps going up and up? Do you guys notice that prostitution, prostitution in Murfreesboro, Corey, 94 children a month are trafficked in Middle Tennessee? Is that three a day? Children in Middle Tennessee, in the Bible Belt, right? Where your Bible was published and all your Christian music comes from. Crime goes up. What are we doing? Whatever we're investing in, is it yielding the results that we want? Is your marriage where you want it to be? Well, no, it's not, Corey. What are you investing in? Are you pouring into each other? Do you budget out date nights? Do you budget out time with your kids? Do you budget out time to go to church? Corey, I don't have to go to church every week. There's always a coalescence, right? There's always this thing where church attendance and people's lives falling apart are almost always perpendicular or parallel, I'm sorry. So people, the same people who tell me I don't have to be at church all the time are the same ones whose marriages are falling apart, same ones whose kids are running wild, right? The same ones who are drowning in depression, they don't need church. 
Well, is what you're investing in paying off the way you want it to? Is watching TV four hours a day or being on Snapchat two hours a day or seeking popularity through Instagram, is that, is that giving you a deep contentment? Do you feel like you've won at life? I just ask you the question, is the route you're going giving you the results you want? And if it's not, maybe it's time to invest in something different. I love you guys so much. And I, I'll just be honest with you. Um, I've been so discouraged lately, so discouraged. Not because I feel like our church is bad or, man, but when you do three funerals in two weeks, and again, when, when all three of them, all three of them could have been prevented, right? When you do those kind of things, it's hard not to sit back and say, man, what are we doing? What are we doing? Am I teaching righteousness right? Are we pouring into the right things? Are we doing what we need to be doing? Guys, I just want to tell you, your family is on the line. Your marriage is on the line. I'm going to tell some of you guys, and you can think I'm just the most judgmental jerk in the world, your salvation is on the line. I don't care if you gave your life to Christ when you were nine years old because your parents pressured you to. To be saved is to have a relationship with Jesus. And if you do not have a day-to-day -day relationship with Jesus, I dare say that you're not, you may not be as saved as you think you are. You need to be talking to the Lord because everything is in the balance. We need to be living righteously. We need to be reading the Word of God. We need to be pouring into our community. If you don't like seeing all the prostitutes and the homeless in your town, do something about it. Reach out. Invest into those around you. Everything is on the line. Everything. Would you bow your heads with me? Here's the, here's the upswing of this lesson. Can we do this alone? Absolutely not. Jesus Christ has died on the cross for us. When he shed his blood and when he rose again from the grave, he poured out his Holy Spirit on all those who believe. Ephesians chapter 1. We are sealed with the Holy Spirit when we believe in Christ. Can we change the world alone? Absolutely not. But with Jesus Christ inside of us, we can can you save your marriage by yourself? No. But with Christ in your heart, you can. Can you fix your family? Can you fix the school system? Can you fix government and politics? With Christ inside of us, we can. Our neighborhoods can look different. Our streets can look different. Our crime rate can look different. But we've got to start investing in something greater. And Jesus Christ died, gave us his Holy Spirit. And if we will invest in a relationship with Jesus, we can see our world change. We can see families change. We can see schools and we can see governments and we can see crime rates. We can see those things change. We can see our personal lives change.
We can find that ever-elusive contentment if we will just trust Christ. We can find that peace. We can find that security if we will just invest in Christ. I know it sounds so simple. Pray, read the Word of God, come to church, find community. If you are in here today and you have had suicidal thoughts, I want to pray right now in Jesus' name that God puts a hedge of protection around your mind and a hedge of protection around your heart. Because let me go there, because I'm a preacher, right? The devil has one mission, to steal, kill, and destroy. That's his objective, because he hates you. And I pray that God protects you right now, that God protects your emotions, he protects your mind, that he puts good people around you to hold you accountable. And I pray that all of us in this room start to invest in him. It's only then will we get the results that we want. If you're in here and you're not a Christian, I just ask you, is your way working? And I don't mean that to condemn you or make you feel bad. But if your way is not working, come up to the front and let someone pray with you. Take a stab at something else. Maybe it will yield better results. If you're in here and you're a Christian, I ask you to ask God to forgive you of your sins and there's communion all the way around you. Take this and, and, and take the time to just speak with the Lord. Communicate with Him. Invest in Him. Father, I love you so much, God. I love this church. God, I love them with all my heart, Lord. God, help us to invest in you. And Lord, help us to invest in others. Lord, don't let us walk through this life alone, God. We need you and we need each other. Lord, if we're struggling with anxiety, if we're struggling with depression, if we're riddled with fear or guilt or shame, God, if we have sin that we need to repent for, touch our hearts, God, and help us with these things. Lord, let us fall in love with our city again. Let it break our hearts, God, when we see women who sell themselves on the street and people who are addicted, God, and struggling. Lord, let it break our hearts. I love you so much, God, and your grace is so thick. Lord, let us swim in the deep waters, God. Lord, let us be drenched by you, God. We love you. We thank you. I thank you so much for this church. God bless them until we meet again. In Jesus' name, amen. Love you guys. Have a great day. Have a great weekend.